Thank you for downloading this podcast, one of a series about body arts produced by the Pitt Rivers Museum at the University of Oxford. This episode features Howard Morphy, Professor of Anthropology and Director of the Research School of Humanities and the Arts at the Australian National University, and also an honorary curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum. In conversation with Helen Hales from the museum, Howard considers the body as a canvas for art and the internal experience of external decoration, notably in the context of Aboriginal Australia. Okay, so we're standing in front of some objects from Australia, both a painting on bark and some photographs showing people with body painting. Can you talk a bit about the relationship between the two? Certainly. Well, it's quite easy in the case of the photograph of the boy, because that's a photograph that I took round about 30 years ago. And it's the face of a boy uh, during his circumcision ceremony, or at least the ceremony preceding his circumcision. What happens is that boys are circumcised in northeast Arnhem Land at round about the age of eight or nine. And on the day of their circumcision, they have a full body painting that takes something like five or six hours to do on their chests because the technique of body painting is very, very elaborate in northeast Arnhem Land. Uh, you first of all knock out the basic design and then with a very thin brush of human hair you paint this cross-hatching across the surface so that the painting in the end seems to shimmer brilliantly. Now, of course, the boy has to stay still for a very long period of time so, in fact, they do kind of test runs and uh, this one is where the boy's face has been painted at a ceremony a year before his circumcision. Now, these paintings in North Australia are actually ancestral designs. They're the paintings that the ancestral beings are believed to have had on their bodies when they involved their, their creative acts. So ancestral beings transformed the shape of the world in uh, Australian Aboriginal beliefs. There was a time called the, the dream time, which is a kind of rough translation of words in Aboriginal languages which means a time before humans when the form of the world was created. And then those ancestral beings handed on the world to the human groups who succeeded them in the land. So these body paintings are very important because they are the marks of the ancestral beings who created the land, but they're also symbols of clan identity because different ancestral beings created land in different places. And you can see from looking at the designs what place that boy is associated with and what social group. So in many ways those paintings and those designs, body paintings, are signs of identity but they're also signs of spiritual connection to ancestral forces and you can see that very much in the form of the body paintings. Really all over the world you can see the human body acting uh, in a whole series of different ways as far as sort of art is concerned. The human body can be a canvas or it can be a framework on which you hang things uh, and body can also be something that you can sculpt almost into different shapes. I mean we can see uh, some societies take that sculpting of the human body uh, to quite extraordinary degrees where people frequently uh, in the case of children will flatten their skulls or mould their skulls into certain uh, shapes. People will wear labrets which are ornaments that extend their lips. Uh, in some societies people will extend the necks or limbs of women by a whole series of rings that would be around their necks and so on. All of these things in fact affect the shape of the human body and those shapes really are a sign that the human body is not 
a natural object entirely, but it is also a cultural object. And in the case of uh, Western society, that applies equally well. Uh, so you'll see in a case along there, there's a breast implant from the Radcliffe Hospital. The whole area of cosmetic surgery has tremendous links in to practices that human beings have been doing ever since we were cultural animals. In the context of Australia, in the context of Northeast Arnhem Land, the main, if you like, sculptures are nose piercing, where people would pierce the nasal septum and put a piece of wood or a kangaroo bone or something through it. Again, something you'll find widespread all over the world. Circumcision, which is, of course, a form of bodily mutilation, which uh, really cross-cuts most cultures and times. In some parts of central Australia, there's a practice called tooth evulsion. It's not done anymore, but tooth evulsion, the knocking out of one or two teeth, in the case of Australia, it's one of the incisors, that's done at a particular moment in people's lives. It's a practice that often people can't give a simple explanation of why they do them. They're a mark of status, so it'll be done when a boy reaches a certain age. It can be body mutilation signs of grief and mourning, very, very common. So a lot of the scarification that happens in the world is scarification that takes place when people have undergone a particular rite of passage or when a relative has died. So in Australia, it's very widespread for people to sort of cut deep cuts in their bodies as signs of mourning. Now, you'll find in some societies that those cuts take on very elaborate and patterned forms. So the Tiwi of Melville and Bathurst Island, their bodies were covered with incredible cicatrices, which actually were very much in the form of artwork. So things that in some societies would be an expression of rage and grief and create a series of relatively random deep scars in people's bodies. In other societies, elsewhere in Australia, in the Tiwi case, will be done in a very systematic way and in that case it'll often be done over a considerable period of time so it's very different from the immediate impact in that way. So you have to look at body decoration and adornment and things both from the inside and from the outside. Now that's going to apply to almost everything because people who are being decorated are going to feel something in themselves. So the child who is having a body painting before being circumcised is going to remember both that experience of the circumcision but also the experience of lying there for a period of five hours calmly having their body painted, being put almost into a meditative state. So although you can see that body decoration is something that we often see from the outside. It's also something that's very much felt from the inside. I've actually been present in circumcision ceremonies in northeast Arnhem Land, and although from the outside we might see this as being uh, really a terribly traumatic event, and it is in some respects, actually it's done in an extraordinary caring environment. Uh, So what happens there is the children are reassured that actually nothing terrible is going to happen to them, and everything is done to keep them calm in that kind of situation. In the case of tooth evulsion, you have to lie there for a period of about uh, you know, 20 minutes or so and have your tooth gradually knocked out. I, I can't imagine that there's any way in which that would be a calming and relaxing experience, but maybe it is something that, depending on the nature of the society, in a sense is preparing you for extreme things in life in the future, toughening you up, uh, but also giving a tremendous sort of sense of uh, occasion. And it's one that then from the outside, people will look at you and they will see 
this person has reached the stage of adult man or so adult en- enduring woman. the pain is part of the accomplishment enduring the pain is part of the accomplishment and it's remarkable how uh, certainly in northeast Ireland in circumcision you'll find boys up and playing football the next day so it's uh, something that seems to be uh, <laughs> they can carry forward we can also see in this display case examples of labrets from the northwest coast of america these are Uh, uh, lip plugs. They are carved uh, wooden objects that you insert in your lip as a kind of extension. Now it may well be that uh, people coming to the Pitt Rivers Museum 30 years ago uh, would look at this and say what a strange custom this is uh, that people in the world should be piercing themselves in this particular kind of way. But of course now piercing and really sort of profound piercing of the tongue and cheek and everything else is a really common factor in our own society. So this may well cause us to reflect more cross-culturally on what the significance and the diversity of significance of these kind of things can be. One of the other things that body decoration can do is it can generalise the individual. In some cases it can be an expression of individual identity and we tend to too often, I think, associate things like makeup and dress as an expression of individual identity. But you only have to look at the nature of the costumes worn by crowds at football matches and things to, like that to see that it's also a generalisation of identity. And that, again, is something that applies cross-culturally. So in Aboriginal Australia, where you're seeing someone with a body painting design on their body or carrying a sacred object with a particular design on it, then that is a sign that they have an ancestral identity that links them to the land, that links to other members of their group, and links us to the ancestral dimension. Mm. So, a tremendous sense of belonging. And of course, that sense of belonging can be generalized to all sorts of different kinds of senses of belonging. It can be a sense of belonging that links you with your city, your place, your clan, your gender. Uh, And as soon as we see this, we actually see the enormous complexity that can, in a sense, be scripted on the body through body adornment, body design, and through, as we've said, the sculpting of the features. We're standing now in front of another of these wonderful Pitt Rivers Museum cases in which Victorian England and Aboriginal Australia are in a sense there side by side. And in fact one of the great things about the Pitt Rivers Museum is that it illustrates commonalities that transcend most human societies. And this particular case is labelled death. And uh, one of the things that hits one immediately is a sort of blackness of the celebration of death in Victorian England, where we have the black jewellery and the black ties. And we get the idea that uh, death is something that is integral to the whole process of human beings living in society. Death is something uh, that most societies see as a form of transition. And in fact, in our society, it's obviously a form of transition. Transition in very different ways. Transition in terms of spiritual transition of the person who has died, but transition also in the passing of someone who leaves an enormous gap and what one does with that gap. So in a way, the adornments that follow death are part of the continuity of that person's life after they're no longer present. One of the things we can see in this case are these extraordinary bark armbands from the Tiwi of Northern Australia. 
Tiwi burial ceremonies are one of the world's... I mean, if you have such a thing as great burial ceremonies, I think that probably is perfectly appropriate. People strive for great burial ceremonies in all societies and indeed will compete very often. Uh, Well, in the case of the Tiwi, in the death of a person resulted in this extraordinary Pukamani ceremony in which large ironwood poles were carved and put as a memorial around the grave where the person laid and people would dress almost competitively to look more splendid than each other decorated with beautiful armbands with feather objects and would carry food and other offerings in baskets that then at the end of the ceremony would be smashed on the top of these ironwood poles a kind of symbol at the same time of grief but also a gift, in a sense, to the person who had died. So burial ceremonies are usually, mortuary rituals, combine the whole series of ways that one both has to come to terms with the death and the feelings of anger that one has, and yet at the same time be reconciled to those who are living. So a lot of the ornamentation associated with death has both of these things in mind. And of course, the kind of attire that people will wear will vary according to their relationship to the person who has died. Uh, In many societies in the world, there's specific attire for widows or other categories of relative of the person who died. In uh, Central Australia, you'll find something called a widow's cap, which is a large white, looks almost like a inside of a polystyrene bicycle helmet, uh, made of kaolin, made of pipe clay. And this is the result of women plastering their heads on the death of their husbands, and they will wear this widow's cap of pipe clay for many months at a time. And then when the period of mourning is over, they'll remove it from their head. So these kind of bodily attire and ornament are part of the process of transition, transition to an afterlife, or transition in the sense of returning to normality again and re-engaging with the society of which you are a part. Now we're standing here in front of these three large cases of Aboriginal art. It'd be interesting to find out more about how this ancient tradition is tied up with ideas of identity among Aboriginal peoples. It's an ancient tradition, but it's also very much a contemporary tradition as well. So the paintings that we're seeing, many of them are paintings that are still being done today in very different contexts. They're being done for sale as part of the uh, local economy, but exactly the same paintings that you see as bark paintings for sale can be painted on the body of a person in an initiation ceremony, or in the case of Western Arnhem Land, you'll find it painted on uh, rock walls. Now, art is integral to identity in Aboriginal Australia and it's also one of the main ways in which ancestral law and knowledge is passed from one generation to the next. And in a way, many of these body painting designs come from the ancestral beings marking the land through their creative acts because what happened in the dreaming uh, was that ancestral beings wandered the earth, they lived a life on a grander scale to the life that uh, ordinary human beings did where they uh, walked they may make a water course where they cut down a tree, it could make the framework of a great lake where they bled, then great waters would flow. So they created the landscape through their 
actions, and then they marked these events by singing, dancing, and painting things that represented their creative history. So, so the designs do actually mean something. The designs absolutely mean something. I mean, they mean many, many things. It's not as though they have a single meaning. But they have reference to this whole world of creativity. And when we're looking now, we can see, I suppose, what people often see as a typical Central Australian designs that are made of geometric figures. They're made of concentric circles. They're made of U-shaped figures. They're made of a series of lines that look as though they may be a snake. There's something there that looks like an octopus in the middle as a combination of all those designs. Certainly, it's not going to be an octopus in Central Australia. But the shapes that look like snakes may well be an ancestral snake. And the path that that ancestral snake created and the concentric circles will be different water holes that were created by that ancestral snake when it went inside and outside the ground. Now, the designs then that people inherited from the ancestral beings, from the ancestral past, are really indicators of those ancestral actions on the landscape. They're almost the body of the ancestral being in the land transferred to a design that then is transferred to a human being. So in a sense, the human being is having the ancestral design that comes from inside, in uh, Aboriginal ways of thinking, inside the ground as an underlying determining order in the world, and then onto the human being who is succeeding that ancestor in the land. And in different parts of Australia, there are different forms of social organization. So in the case of Northeast Arnhem Land, which are the geometric bark paintings with really elaborate what would be called clan designs on them. You can see them in the case uh, here to the right that we're looking at. And those particular patterns, they may be diamond patterns, they may be patterns of a series of uh, intersecting lines, they may be circles joined by lines, a whole series of different kind of patterns. They belong to particular areas of land and particular ancestral beings. So when you look at those, if you're a Yolngu person today, you will say, ah, oh, that is the design that belongs to Gangan. That is the sacred fire that spread from there in the ancestral past. The person who has that design on their body is connected to that place, to that clan, and so on. So they are markers of spiritual identity, but also we mustn't separate that from the other ways in which art communicates, because art also communicates through its expressive powers. And Australian Aboriginal art tends to shine from the surface of either the body or the painting. And that shining that comes from the surface, that shimmer, is thought to be the power of the ancestral being uh, coming out of the work of art affecting those who are looking at it, but obviously when it's painted on a body painting, it's really the incarnation of the spirit of that ancestral being in the person who's undergoing initiation. It's also going to be connected to death because those very same designs in Arnhem Land will be put painted on the body of someone who's passed away to ensure the passage of their soul back to the ancestral dimension. You talked about the strong relationship between the people and the land. Is there any significance in using colours, paints and pigments that themselves have come from the land? 
Very much so. And in, indeed, in northern Australia, there's a tremendous, if you like, conservative in the use of colour, precisely because it's not really very conservative. What may look like any old red ochre to us is actually red ochre from a particular place. And there are subtle colour differences between different kinds of red ochre that people will be able to identify with the ancestral beings from those places. So people do tend to use uh, natural earth colours and they will trade those earth colours and they will use earth colours often that are associated with their particular moiety or their particular area of land. That doesn't mean that in other medium, Indigenous Australians haven't actually you know, welcomed the extravagant ray of colours that are made possible by the introduction of new pigments and so on and so forth. But what they haven't done is suddenly drop the traditional pigments from all occasions to take on the introduced pigments. So people do things in different ways in different parts of Australia. But in the area that I have spent most of my time in, Yolngu people in eastern Arnhem Land decide that in the case of bark paintings, they will keep true to the earth pigments, whereas in the case of prints that they're making, they open that up to the whole array of colours. And in fact, there are I think artistic reasons why they do this as well, because actually acrylic paints on bark don't really work nearly as well as the earth pigments on, on bark. Um, so, whereas, of course, acrylic paints, pigments on canvas are very effective. Finally, I just wanted to ask, we're looking at quite a specific part of Australia, um, Arnhem Land, which is the Northern Territory. Can you find similarities in the artistic cultures of other Aboriginal groups in Australia? Yes, we're looking at Arnhem Land. We're also looking at Central Australia. So these wonderful paintings from uh, Ewan de Moo, the Walbury, the ones that are in acrylics on canvas, actually come from quite close to Alice Springs in the centre. The colonial history of Australia was one in which there was a tremendously rapid spread of Europeans with devastating effect over the southeast and west of Australia, going right into the centre. And Aboriginal people resisted but they resisted with difficulty. But when we look at the artistic system right the way across Australia, we see enormous similarities, this sense of attachment to land, and also in different ways uh, you can see similarities in the aesthetics. So the aesthetics that are created in northeast Arnhem Land by thin cross-hatching with a hairbrush are actually created in southeast Australia by the incredibly fine incision on these highly polished weapons, shields, that have tremendous decorative form and very often were embellished by, again, having pipe clay rubbed in to the engravings that were made on them. So you can see commonalities in aesthetics and also commonalities in the uh, spiritual nature of art right the way across the uh, continent. And another thing that is a characteristic form of Australian Aboriginal art Ground sculptures, ground drawings are all over Australia with these magnificent uh, works that were done in that particular way. In the 19th century, Europeans didn't really do ground drawings. Today, you can imagine ground drawings are very much part of contemporary art practice in many areas. So it's very interesting looking at art across time to see how different genres of art actually occur uh, right the way across uh, human history and across cultures.